Hello and welcome to the DDI podcast. Today we have Alex Pentland from MIT discussing innovation through social capital and will COVID-19 change the way we interact. But first, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at ddi.ac.uk and follow us on social media on LinkedIn and on Twitter at datacapitaled. So sit back, relax and enjoy the podcast. Hello, my name is David Lee, and today I'm talking to Professor Alex Pentland. Once named one of the seven most influential data scientists in the world, and a leading global thinker on data and the tension between the challenges and the opportunities it presents. Five years ago, Professor Pentland wrote Social Physics, describing how ideas flow through social networks and are ultimately transformed into behaviours. His book described the digital breadcrumbs that we all leave behind in the modern world. And today we'll talk about those digital breadcrumbs, about social physics, and a subject at the heart of Professor Pentland's current work, the ownership and control of data. How can individuals and communities start to exercise some degree of control over how their data is used and what part can data cooperatives play? Alex Pentland, thank you for joining us today uh, from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, First of all, can I ask, what do you mean by digital breadcrumbs? Digital breadcrumbs are all the little bits of information that we leave behind us as we go about our lives. So, you know, anything you do online, you know, queries or button pushes, GPS, financial transactions, there's all sorts of things that we leave behind. Um, and many of these are absolutely required to to make the service work. I mean, you can't buy things with a credit card or with your phone unless they know who you are. And that requires, you know, having some information and checking it and things like that. Similarly, cell phones won't work unless they know what cell tower is near. Uh, so that's a little piece of information about where your cell phone is and therefore where you are. Uh, But if you add all this up, it makes a very uh, rich portrait of our actual behavior, not not the socially presented construction uh, that we, you know, dress up for and so forth, but what we actually do. And of course, that raises the questions of privacy and control and, and on and on that are so familiar today. Yeah. And that would also include social media use, presumably the digital breadcrumbs. Yeah, everybody focuses on that, Um, but actually that's a lot less uh, concerning to me uh, than the other. The the social media is sort of what you say you do. It's the public face that you have. So it's already something that is somewhat public, right? But there's a lot of things that you leave behind that you never realize. So for instance, your cell phone has to check into cell towers all the time, which means that the cell phone company has to know where you are all of the time. Uh, And you may not even be aware of that. And and certainly that's a lot more intimate than something you chose to put on online. So so it's, um, it's these ones that aren't top of mind, the ones that are a little hidden that are more concerned. They're also far more powerful for characterizing your life because it's not what you say you are. It's what you really are. And how can we use all of these digital breadcrumbs to derive useful insights that actually might help us shape 
some kind of social change? Well, the, the core thing um, is that it's what people really do. And um, if you can find a way to handle that appropriately, that's incredibly powerful. We have, for instance, a national census in every country. Um, and that's to figure out, you know, how many people are here? What sort of money do they live? What sort of number of children? Are, because you need that to plan government, to plan public policy. This other newer information can be used exactly the same way. So I'm on the board of directors for the UN's Global Partnership for Sustainable Development, a lot of words. Basically, it's trying to help um, national statistical offices measure things like inequality, sustainability, uh, racial violence, things like that, which, which you know, remarkably, we, we really don't have a handle on that. We have stories about it. We know these things exist. But, but the idea of finding out on sort of on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis, the way the census does, some of these other things, uh, like inequality or violence or so forth, um, could result in not only governments being able to have policies that actually work, but the community to check that the government is doing the right thing, for the community to take its own action. So it's empowering also, if only you can solve the personal privacy part. Yeah, and going back to what you said about at community level, understanding at community and neighborhood level what use uh, these pieces of information can be. You mentioned when we spoke before about New York and the grocery stores during COVID-19. Can you elaborate on that a little bit about how that information can actually derive very useful insights at local level? Yeah, so um, during the peak of the pandemic in New York City, uh, one of the major telcos made available uh, aggregate anonymous data. So think of it like census data. You can't see any individual person. Um, but this data was, you know, how many people from this neighborhood went to this place? How many people went to that place? Things like that. And it wasn't even the individual places. It was, you know, grocery stores, subways, things like that. And what we could do is analyze that and show that uh, their lockdown had a big hole in it. And the big hole was the grocery stores they have in New York, which are very small. And everybody has small refrigerators. So that meant that everybody had to go to this little tiny grocery store every day and they were infecting each other. And when that was realized, they changed the policy so that the food was brought out to the sidewalk, you ordered ahead. And of course, that that changed the infection rate dramatically. So that's an example of aggregate data. It's not about any particular person, it's about aggregate, total sort of behavior, being able to help save people's lives in this case. And you can do the same thing about many things. So you can ask about unemployment in each neighborhood in each week so that you know where to, to put public services. You can ask about um, other sorts of behavior, violence behavior, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And another example during the pandemic, I believe, was um, the whole idea of hospital spikes, sudden admissions to hospital. And I think Israel did some interesting work there. 
Yeah. So when you begin to sort of ask things like, well, how many people from this neighborhood went to each of the hospitals? You begin to see early warning signs that there's a, a spike in infection. So this is before most people even know that they're sick. Maybe most people aren't sick, but there's enough people beginning to do it um, that you can see that there'll be a spike. And it's normally invisible because if you sit in one hospital, you see a couple people from this neighborhood, a couple from that, doesn't seem like anything wrong. It's the fact that every hospital has people from this one neighborhood that tells you that something's going on there. So that sort of data about neighborhood behavior uh, it turns out to be very, very uh, indicative, uh, uh, early warning sign, which means you can get in there early, you can remind people about social distancing, you can do contact tracing, there's all sorts of things you can do to stamp out the, the infection rate, if you know what neighborhood to focus on. Yeah, And you've talked there about real life data, you've talked about real time data, how well do you think we have deployed real-time, real-life data during this pandemic, and where are the barriers? How can we do it better? Well, um, there are some places we've done pretty well, like these social distancing measures, right? So that's using typically telco data. There's another uh, example where there's a company that does these uh, smart thermometers. They, they're internet connected. And you can see aggregates of how many people's temperature has gone up in each county. Uh, and that's an early warning sign. But an example of something that didn't go so well is there's all these hospitals that are doing uh, what is called off-label treatment. So doctors can take approved drugs and use them in ways that aren't the standard ways. And that's what's been happening with the pandemic. People give them people these drugs that they think may work. They don't know it for sure, but they think they may work and they know that they're not going to hurt. But, but even though hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of people have been treated in this way, there's no aggregate insights from that or very few aggregate insights because they're not sharing data among the different hospitals in a compatible way. So by this time, you know, you should know about each of the drugs. <laughs> you should know about all of the treatments. It took them months and months to figure out that, for instance, ventilators are a bad idea. And, and you should try just oxygen first. Uh, it turns out that, that many of the drugs that people were trying didn't work, and some of them did. Mm -hmm. uh, but it took far longer than it should have. And that sort of lack of data and lack of data sharing is a major cause of uh, problems in the pandemic. Yeah. And one of the big issues that we've, we've talked about a lot in different countries around the world is the whole track and trace and how uh, we identify those people who have been in contact with someone who's been infected with COVID-19. Now, different countries have taken different approaches and this really cuts to that whole trade, what you talk about in your book is a trade-off between personal and social values. So right. South Korea took one approach, but that was an approach that couldn't really have happened or wouldn't have been acceptable in the US and the UK. How, how could you tease that out for us? Just explain that a little bit more. Well, in every society, there is a trade-off between personal privacy and public safety. Uh, there are 
cases like earthquakes, disasters of various sorts, really acute pandemics, where we have to trade some personal privacy against uh, public safety. Uh, well-established, it's, it's in the law, it's something that, that uh, is, is broadly accepted. The danger is, is, is that it's a slippery slope. You know, once you begin to trade a little bit, then after the emergency, it stays that way. So that's what people worry about. Different societies have different trade-offs. As you mentioned, South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, uh, Singapore are much more on the public safety side. And in part because they've seen pandemics more frequently than we are, but also there are much more communal societies. Um, they're a level of uh, everybody does the same thing much more than in most Western societies. So, so we have to, in Western societies, come up with different ways of achieving the same ends without taking away personal freedom. And what that means roughly is, is that we have to do uh, a lot, be a lot smarter about finding these things early. And that means things like really smart sharing of data between hospitals, uh, being able to have a smart census data that's real time so that you can see trends and, and inform people in ways that uh, uh, currently we don't. So for instance, at this moment in the United States, there's a real spike of pandemic in some of the Southern and Western states uh, that previously you know, from their point of view, this is what's all the upset about. There's nothing going on. So they didn't take very many uh, uh, precautions, particularly the younger people. And now they're seeing that it's real. <laughs> and, and hopefully that will cause a learning process and, and it'll be dealt with. But the, um, the, it, it's sad that it took that, right? Uh, it should have been something where there was enough learning between uh, different communities that they got the message early on. And uh, I disagree that it has to come from on high. You know, it's like the central government or the WHO, because every community is different. The message is slightly different in every place. If you live in a very, very rural mountainous area, it's different than if you live in New York City. And so but there has to be a, a method of communicating to people generally, what's the situation, what are the choices, and very quickly arriving at uh, a consensus about what we're gonna do and why. And, yeah. and that hasn't happened. So that's a failure of leadership, of science, of, of medicine at all levels to do that communication and that, that sharing of insights. And and what about this whole idea of kind of ownership of data, uh, Alex? Who you believe that we need to get to a position where we can share that data at much more local level? We've got that that tension between individuals, small communities, governments, big business. How do you see that playing out, and where do data cooperatives play a part in that? Yeah. So. Almost uh, 15 years ago, I started the discussion at, at Davos that led to GDPR, so gave people rights over their data. Um, but rights over your data doesn't do much for you because your data, face it, is not worth very much. Maybe a couple hundred bucks, <laughs> but 
not even that really. And it's complicated. What are you going to do with it? I you know, it's it, it I'm an expert and I can't really figure this out. Um, and so the situation is very much like um, uh, labor back a hundred years ago, where you know people had the rights to work or not work in a place, but the big companies were exploiting the workers. And what did the workers do? They banded together, which gave them the political clout to be able to push back. So data is a sort of a similar thing. It's another means of production, right? And um, it's more similar to, for instance, land rights or some like financial rights, but it's not quite like like money, um, where what you do is you have this possession and it's only valuable if you have it in aggregate, if you have lots of people that are, are going together, like a union, right? Or like a, like a small bank. Um, and so that's what we need to do is, is my data by myself is not very valuable. But if I have all the people in my uh, community joining together, not giving up their data, but, but allowing it that like in a data bank or a data cooperative, then I could ask, is the public health system working for us? Is the city treating us right? Uh, could You could push back against, you know, uh, ride sharing firms or government or whatever, because you'd have the data. You would be able to find things out about your community quickly, things that are of, of concern to the community. So, you know, in the United States and in most of the Western countries, uh, this happened with money uh, in the sort of late 1800s. So there was the beginning of these commercial banks. They exploited the common citizens. So the common citizen began to create uh, data uh, money cooperatives, you know, cooperative banks. And these were often rural agricultural banks because most of the people were still in agriculture as their main uh, business. A hundred years ago, it was labor. You know, as we began to industrialize, the, the, the companies exploited the workers. So the workers formed local things against a particular company, against a particular uh, industry, like garment industry in a city, and, and began to push back and push for uh, political change. And eventually those turned into national and international organizations. But that took a long time. It started local because the concern was local. And uh, the same is true of data. Is I think that you know we need to have these cooperatives, the things that are like like uh, credit unions or like labor unions. We need data unions that are are neighborhood based. How hard is that going to be, Sandy? Because at the moment, a lot of data is is in the hands of governments. It's in the hands of large private corporations, very powerful beings. How hard is it going to be to kind of shift this balance? Well, the, the first order thing is easy because GDPR and the legal frameworks in almost every country give you the right to copies of the data that, that you put in and the data that you can see, right? And in fact, actually, GDPR and now in the U.S. Uh, CPP is giving people the right to all the data that a company has about them. Um, so... Part of it's really easy, and the legal right to more is there. What isn't there is, is the cooperative aspect, 
the people working together with their new resource, which is data. Now, what I see is I see an enormous interest in unions, particularly gig workers, things like that, trying to band together with their data to see if they're being paid correctly, to see if they uh, are being exploited. That's one side. The other side with this uh, pandemic is there's a lot of economic devastation. So communities are going to have to invest locally to restore small businesses, grocery stores, clinics. And to do that intelligently, they need to have data about their community. And it's much easier now to get data about your community. Where do people go in the community? How, what's the unemployment rate, et cetera? That's actually much easier to get now than it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And so as people begin to invest in reconstruction of our economy, of our society, as they begin to address some of the inequalities that we've had exposed, um, that's going to depend on community-level data. So I see all sorts of people beginning to do investment cooperatives, community investment cooperatives, where they pool their data to figure out where should we put in a clinic? Should we put in a clinic at all? Should we have after-school things that, that we uh, set up and, and where, right? How should that work? So that's actually very hopeful because now it forces communities to talk to each other so you get increased trust and, and sort of collective intelligence, but it's all based around the data that a community produces. You're talking effectively about data for good. Um, there's been a lot of focus on data for bad, as you said earlier on, particularly around social media and you know the, the, the uses to which people's data might be put through scandals like Cambridge Analytica and so on. But there is a big data for good agenda. You've been involved right from the start of your career. I mean, you, you, your career in data started with counting beavers from space. Is that right? <laughs> yes, my first job was counting beavers from space. So uh, the very first land use satellites, which were put up there to look for um, crop failures and, and prevent starvation, uh, people very quickly discovered that you could use them for uh, monitoring the environment. And my very first job was monitoring the wildlife and the environment in, uh, North, in Canada and in Northern Europe. And, and it's a joke to sort of counting beavers, but, but that's actually what we did. And the way it worked was beavers build beaver dams, which create small lakes that are all of about the same size. And so what you can do is you can see the lakes from outer space and you can count the number of lakes and that tells you about the number of beavers. So and, that, and that, stimulated your, that stimulated your data for good agenda. Which exactly. Is the, which yeah, is that, that's now. how we know a lot of things about global warming, for instance, that sort of work. And the same thing is now true of people. You can use the sort of data, and you don't have the original data. What you have is you have these proxies, like the lakes are for the beavers, uh, or the people going, how, many, how much foot traffic is there in a grocery store? You have these, these proxies for aggregate behavior that tell you about the structure of society, let you look for disasters and problems, and let you point the way towards better solutions. 
So there's been some criticism of like data for good. Well, who determines good? Well, that's a fair criticism. But the answer is, is communities ought to determine their own good. Uh, but to do that, they have to pool their data so that they can use that data that they already own for good. Thanks very much, Alex Pentland. That's fantastic. Thanks very much for your time and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe at ddi.ac.uk to our newsletter to hear about the next instalment in the podcast series. And be sure to look out for our articles on our website and on our social media channels. So thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.